Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Get your Bibles out. Turn to Mark chapter 12, verse 28. While you are finding that in your Bible, let me just tell you about a little something I ran across this week. In preparation for this morning, I was doing a Google search on some stuff, and I ran across uh, something called the Record Setter website. Does anybody know about that website? Apparently what it is, is you select a, a category, and you select an event in that category, and you have the opportunity to try and set the world record. You do it on video, then upload it to the site, and if they verified by that video that you've broken the world record, uh, then you are now the top world record holder and your video is on the top of that page. And so I was doing a little searching on the issue of love because we'll be talking about that this morning and so I ran across this site and world records on love. And it was interesting. Currently the world record holder for uh, saying I love you the most time in 30 seconds is actually a youth pastor. The youth pastor's name is Kenny Santine. Uh, and he said, I love you, to his wife 69 times in only 30 seconds. That's pretty impressive. It's actually watching him say that on the video that many times that fast. I don't even know where he found some time to get breath. But it's one thing to be a world record holder when it comes to simply saying the words, I love you. It's another thing to be a world record holder when it actually comes to living out actions of love. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, what it means to be a world record holder when actually living out love in real life. So hopefully you found uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 28 in your Bibles. I'd like to ask you to stand out of reverence for the Word of God as we read verse 28 down through verse 34. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. That ends the reading of the word of God, and you can be seated. Well, these verses have a common theme. That theme is love. Uh, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love people like you would love yourself. Now, this is a good thing for us because oh, even when we become a Christian, we never love perfectly. 
we always have to improve our love for God, and we always have to improve our love for our neighbor. This is something we're continually working on improving because the only way we'll love perfectly is when we are in heaven itself. Now, as we go through these verses, just so you know, I'm dividing our study up into four parts. The first thing we'll do is look at some of the background of these verses. Then we'll look at the question the scribe asks Jesus. Then we'll look at the answer that Jesus gives. And lastly, we'll look at the response that the scribe makes to Jesus after his answer. So that's the way our study will break apart. You have your outlines. We'll start on the top. What is the background of these verses? Remember where we're at. Uh, we are in the last week of Jesus' life. We are in the middle of the last week. And so there's a lot of stuff going on at this point. Uh, the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish leadership, is committed to getting rid of Jesus. When Jesus emptied out the uh, temple courts of the money changers and the animal sellers, the Sanhedrin was furious with him. How dare he assert that kind of authority right here in the place that we run? But they didn't have the authority to just get rid of him like that because he was loved by the people. So they had put a plan in place to undermine him with the people. Remember, they had been sending three delegations to him. The first delegation <coughs> was some Pharisees who tried to trick him and trap him with questions about paying taxes. And Jesus evaded those questions. The second delegation we looked at last week, it was the Sadducees who tried to trick him and trap him with questions about the resurrection. They wanted to make him look like he was a, a fool. But at the end of the day, they left with egg on their face because Jesus says you massively underestimate the power of God and you also don't know your Bibles, which would clearly talk about the resurrection being true. This morning, we come to the third delegation sent to Jesus to trick him and trap him. Uh, it's actually a lone Pharisee, or excuse me, a lone scribe that is coming to him to do that. Now, as we look, look at him, at least in the Gospel of Mark, he does not sound like a, a, a person that intended to trick Jesus or a person that intended to, to trap Jesus. He sounds sort of like a, just an innocent observer who had a, a question at the end of these things. But here's where it's helpful to look at these accounts in uh, the other Gospels. Matthew also records what's going on here, and Matthew is usually a little bit more verbose than Mark is. He gives more details, and Matthew provides some very helpful backstory information of what was going on here that adds some information we need. I have that verse from Matthew in your outlines. It says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. So after Jesus silences the Sadducees that we studied last week, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin got together and made another plan. We need to send somebody else to go ahead and try and trick him and trap him. And we're going to send this lawyer to do this. Incidentally, uh, Mark describes him as a scribe. Matthew describes him as a lawyer. Is there an error in here? Actually not. 
um, is you, you've been with us for a while in the study of the Gospel of Mark. You've picked up that scribes actually are the theological lawyers in that day. So a scribe and a lawyer are essentially the same thing when it refers to them here. They're the highly educated Pharisees. They're the highly educated Sadducees. Now, sometimes as we've been studying the, the Sanhedrin in our study through this gospel, we've talked about the Sanhedrin being composed of Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. And I did a little bit more background research, and maybe that is not a fair characterization of the way to describe it. Because uh, it almost sounds like they have a three-party system in that day, when the reality is they have a two-party system. The San Sanhedrin was composed of people who were Pharisees and people who were Sadducees, some of whom in that group were so highly educated they were the theological lawyers, the theologicals, or the scribes. So the scribes are the particularly highly educated Sadducees or Pharisees. By the way, usually they were almost always Pharisees, not Sadducees. It's a little bit like we would say in our Congress today. We have people that are in the Congress. They are either Republicans or Democrats. Some of them are very highly educated and are lawyers. And those are the ones we would talk about. So that's what we have going on here. That's the background I wanted to give you on this passage. Now let's dive into the question itself that this highly educated man asked Jesus. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he'd answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? How could that be a trap? It doesn't really sound like a trap. It sounds like a very innocent question. And that's sort of the idea, to make it sound like an innocent question. To only send one person with an innocent question that they can use to trick and trap him. Let me show you how this trap works. Uh, last week, we talked about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and what they believed about the Scriptures. The Pharisees believe in all the books of the Old Testament that you and I accept are from God. The Sadducees only believe the first five books of the Old Testament that we look at were actually from God. Uh, they're called the books of Moses or the law books. So they disagreed on what actually composed their Bible in that day. But here is what they did agree upon. The first five books were from God. That everybody agreed upon. And those five books were called the law books that tell what, what God's laws are. Now, the belief in that day was that Jesus was undermining the law of God, that he was not supportive of the law of God. This was also, by the way, a common accusation to Paul, that he was undermining the law of God. So, the idea is when the, the scribe says, which is the most important commandment in the law, their hope is that Jesus will give an answer that doesn't come from the law. And what will they do? Got him. He is against the law. We've proven it. Because he says the most important commandment doesn't even come from the law. That is the desire, what they're doing. 
By the way, you can see this idea about the perception that uh, at least Paul it was against the law of God right in the book of Acts. Let me just show you this quickly. Um, crying out, men of Israel, help this man who is teaching everywhere, everyone everywhere against the people and the law, there it is, and this place. He's even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled the holy place. That's not true, but that was the common accusation that was leveled against uh, Paul, and it was a common belief that was an accusation against Jesus. Now, for the fun of it, and also for some good background, let me give you some trivia uh, about the Old Testament law, uh, the laws that were in the first five books of the Old Testament. Just so you know, there, uh, the Jews said there was 613 laws in these first five books. Those who study these things, I didn't check this out personally myself because it would take far too long to get to do during the week, say that actually what they did is they sort of fluffed that number up a wee bit to get to 613. They added some of their interpretations of God's Word to the laws. They added some oral traditions to actually get the number to 613 laws. Now you may wonder, why did they insist on 613? It's because the rabbis would say that in the Decalogue, which is the Ten Commandments, there are 613 Hebrew letters. And you needed to have one law, they said, for each letter. That's some of their rabbinical nonsense. Now, they further subdivided these 613 laws. They said there was 248 that were positive commands and 365 that were negative commands. You know why they liked 365 negative commands? They wanted to come up with that number? How many days are there every year? You get a negative law for each day. Talk about being depressed. At least we have leap year, right? Get a day off. Well, because there were so many laws and people couldn't keep them straight, much less even remember them, not even mentioning obeying them, what they began doing was starting to categorize these laws. Some laws they called light, and other laws they called heavy. Some laws were really important to obey, and other laws were less important to obey, even though all should be obeyed. Now, Jesus, incidentally, even affirms this idea of heavy and light laws, some being more important than other. Let me show you this in your outline. Uh, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. I want you to notice, Jesus says here, there are some matters of the law that are weightier than others. Like justice and mercy, that is really important stuff. Now, the backdrop of this is how they spice their food. When you and I want to get some spices in our food, we just get out that jar of McCormick, right? They're real easy, you know, throw that on the food. They didn't have McCormick in that day, so they would have what you call a little spice garden or a little spice plants, little house plants that they would grow 
And when they wanted to spice their food, they'd take and they'd trim off a little bit of those mints, a little bit of the cumin, and then they would spice their food. But the, the Pharisees were so legalistic about this, they said, well, you know, we actually harvested some mint for dinner tonight, so we're going to take 10% of that mint, set it aside, and make sure we give it as part of our offering to the temple the next time we go there. Now, Jesus is like, you're focusing on little things, but you're really neglecting the weightier and important things, like justice and mercy. But here is what I want you to notice, because this will be a strange twist for us. How does Jesus say this at the end? These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. In other words, it is right for you to give a tithe, that is 10%, of your small and unexpected incomes. But don't do that and then neglect the weightier and more important matters like justice and mercy. How does this apply to us? Say you're helping a friend move and after helping him move, they insist on you taking a $100 bill. It's right to give a tithe that is 10% to the Lord of that $100. It's unexpected income, it's small income, it's just $10, but it's right to tithe that. But don't tie that and then neglect the weightier and much more important matters like justice and mercy. So the idea with 613 laws, they've tried to break it apart. Some are light, some are heavy, some are more important than others. Another thing they tried to do to make it possible for people to at least begin to obey these things, much less even remember these things, was they tried to summarize these laws. What is a way that they could summarize uh, all of God's laws into something simple, portable, that people would remember? That actually became sort of a scribal riddle in that day that a lot of the theological lawyers were debating over. And that is the question that this scribe, this theological lawyer, gives to Jesus. How can we summarize this mess of laws? And here's Jesus' answer. Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these two. So Jesus summarizes all of God's commandments. He says, if you can just focus on this, loving God and loving people, you pretty much can get the whole thing. So let's break this apart. We are to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Incidentally, in Hebrew, this is called the Shema. Shema comes from the first word where it says, hear, O Israel. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. Uh, the Hebrews would actually say this little phrase that we have looked at here, the first commandment. They would say it twice a day, every morning and every evening. And by the way, it is found in the first five books of the Old Testament. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. The background is uh, Deuteronomy is very helpful here. When Deuteronomy was written, by the way, Moses was an old guy. 
He was 120 years old at that point, and he would soon die. Remember what Moses had done for the last 40 years of his life. He had walked around in circles in the wilderness, waiting for the entire Exodus generation to die. And there was a whole new generation that was going to come up, and that new generation has now been born. They're adults. It's time for them to go into the promised land. Moses will soon die and go off the scene. So what does Moses do? He holds a Bible conference. That's literally what he does. It's a month-long Bible conference where he tells this new generation their history and what they need to know to be able to succeed when they go in the promised land. And Deuteronomy chapter 31 tells us this whole month-long Bible conference by Moses was actually written down. It's called the book of Deuteronomy. That's what it is. It's a Bible conference summary from him. And as we get down to Deuteronomy chapter 6, let me give you a little uh, sample of the kind of things that Moses is challenging this new generation for as they go to the promised land. There's the first three verses here in Deuteronomy 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons, by keeping all of his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. He's saying, please, listen to these laws. Your success in the land, your fruition in the land, it's all tied to you obeying the law of God. And how are they supposed to be able to obey this law? What is going to be the motivation that is going to keep their hearts obeying God's word? That's the next thing he says in Deuteronomy. And here's what he says. The way that you will obey God is when your hearts truly love God. Isn't that true? The only way you obey when somebody asks you something is if you truly love them. You may obey out of fear, that's true, but that's only external compliance. You obey somebody when you love somebody. And this is why all of a sudden he flips about love. You get to verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Because when you truly love God, it won't be a burden to want to obey God. Now let me just break some of this down a little bit. Some observations. He points out, by the way, there is only one God. Our love does not need to be divided. They would go into this promised land and there's going to be all these other people who are worshiping other gods. Who, and 
what's the normal thing that people do? Well, let me get all my bases covered. You worship your God, then I'll join you in worshiping your God, and you're, let's go ahead and worship everybody's God. That's not the way it works. He says you have to remember there is only one God out there. And who are the other people worshiping? Moses tells them in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had recently come. By the way, just to apply this today, there is still only one God out there. And you and I know him through this book and through the Holy Spirit that is in our life. Allah, Krishna, Buddha, who are people worshiping? They're not just worshiping our God in a different way. They are worshiping demons. Is there spiritual power in there? Yes, there is demonic power in there. That is what Moses said. They're worshiping demons, not the same gods in a different way. And since there is only one God, here's what he says. We are to love God with every fiber of our being, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Incidentally, this is grammatically called a hendiadis. It is using multiple words to try and describe one idea. The big idea is that we should love God with all of the fiber of our being. Now, what does this mean for us? When I was younger, one of the things that I often heard was uh, the little story of uh, my heart, Christ's home. You guys remember that growing up? That God dwells in our hearts, and in our heart there are different rooms and we have to choose to open all the different rooms of our heart to God, not just some of the rooms of our heart to God. Like there is the family room where we go for entertainment. What do we watch on the internet? What kind of music do we listen to? What kind of movies do we enjoy? What are the things we watch on YouTube? That if we have to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that Jesus has to be in charge of that entertainment room, not just on Sunday. There's the, the living room where we entertain our friends, the people that we enjoy our relationships with. But then the question becomes, is Jesus the one who is in charge of our relationships with other people? And are there some people we cut out of our life because they're leading us astray? And other people we intentionally include in our life because they're encouraging us in Christ? If we're to love crowd with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our heart is Christ's home, he has to have access to every single room in the home of our heart. Now, the question becomes, if we are to obey God, and the way we obey God is we have to love God, how do we grow in our love for God? And here's the answer. We grow in our love for God by increasing our knowledge of God. That is what Moses was doing. He sits down, has a month-long Bible conference to give this new generation a whole history and story of how God had taken their parents out of Egypt and all the things that he had done for them, all the ways he had provided for them throughout the wilderness. Because when they saw what God had done for them, then they grew in their love for God. And when you grow in your love for God, your obedience to God follows right afterwards. 
Now, the same is true for us, but here's a little different wrinkle. This was in the Old Testament times. The salvation that Moses was able to tell them about is taking their parents out of Egypt from facing certain death. The salvation that we know about is much greater. It's through Jesus Christ. It wasn't just physical death in the land of Egypt that he saved us from. It was eternal death and damnation in the lake of fire. If you've been around the church for a while, you know the incredible agonies that Christ went through. And he became sin for us as he suffered and died on the cross for us. And what we find is the more we grow in our knowledge of God, the more we grow in our love for God, which then results in our heart having a desire to obey God. You see how that works? Now here's the way we apply this. I know this morning there are some people here who are struggling. You're struggling with issues of sin in your life. Sometimes you may even be just hateful of yourself. Why do I keep doing those things? How do I beat these deep-rooted issues of sin? And let me tell you how it works. The way you beat these deep-rooted issues of sin is you give yourself to pursuing knowledge of God, pursuing knowledge of Jesus Christ. Read God's Word. Spend time with other Christian brothers and sisters to build you up. As you grow in your knowledge of God, you'll grow in your love for God. As you grow in your love for God, you'll grow in your obedience to God. This is the way it works. Paul simply says it this way, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ ends up controlling us. Let me just jump down uh, to the next point from this. We're to love our neighbor, to love our neighbor as ourself. That's the second commandment. And I would like to point out for you, by the way, it's pretty interesting, the Ten Commandments are about loving God, and they are about loving our neighbor. If you were around for our study of the Ten Commandments, you'll remember this. If you notice, the first four commandments are all about loving God. The next six commandments are all about loving our neighbor. Incidentally, uh, up to this point, as far as we can tell in the books that I've read, there is nobody who has summarized all of God's laws simply as loving God and loving your neighbor at this point. Jesus is the first to do this, and it is an apt summary of the Ten Commandments themselves, since four are about loving God and six are about loving your neighbor. Now, what I want to do is I, wanted, I had gone through as my study... What does it mean for us to love our neighbor? And here we go. A couple applications. We cannot love God without loving our neighbor. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has lo not seen. Loving God and loving people are closely and intimately related that you can't claim to love God if you don't love people. In fact, when you find people who are constantly critical, who refuse to be patient, who are not helpful, who are disobedient, who are not kind, 
where does that issue root in? It roots out of their relationship with God. Because it's our relationship with God that bubbles over into loving other people. Next point. We love our neighbor by deeply loving our brothers and sisters at church. 1 John says this, We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. John says one of the great evidences of having been born again is there is a deep and passionate love between brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. That when you and I come to church, quite honestly, the place where you should feel the most connected, the most loved with people you have the most in common is your church home. Because you have all, we have all experienced, at least most of us I hope have experienced, being born again, which the natural result of that is we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, I would go so far as to say is if you are here this morning and you would consider your best friends are not your Christian friends, there may be something wrong. Because your best friends will be your Christian friends because of the love of the brothers and sisters that Jesus Christ creates in our hearts. Another point, we love our neighbor by joyfully sacrificing our time and money to help others at church. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. One of the things I sometimes neglect to mention, by the way, is here at Crosswinds, we have a, a benevolent fund. People give above and beyond their regular tithes and offerings to that fund, and they just note that in the, the memo line of their check to the benevolent fund. And what's been interesting and fun is that as deacons and deaconesses, they have the privilege of managing those funds and using those resources to help people and crosswinds when they're in times of need. Now, having been around crosswinds for 11 years, here's the neat part I can tell you. That there are tens of thousands of dollars that have been given to people in this church family from that fund. Single mothers in desperate times of need, people in desperate times of need for medical bills. And to me, there is such joy with that because it says here, we don't love our brothers and sisters in Christ just in word and in talk, but in actions and in truth. And that benevolent fund is one of the great ways to do that. Some of you have given to the benevolent fund. Others of you, I know, have just been real practical. Others of you have helped people move when they've needed it. They've, others of you have made meals for those who are going through times of crisis. Others have helped with home repair. Others have helped put porches on houses. That's what it means to love our brothers and sisters in, in Christ and to love our neighbor as ourself. The Bible also tells us we love our neighbor by loving our neighborhood so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. 
our number one priority is to do good and to love our Christian brothers and sisters in Christ, but we're also to love our neighborhood. Did any of you guys see this in the news this week about Crossroads Church in Cincinnati? Anybody see this? Uh, Crossroads Church in Cincinnati teamed up with an organization called RIP Medical Debt. RIP Medical Debt takes every $100 that is given to them, and they're able to use that to relieve $10,000 in medical expenses. I don't know how they do that, but that's what they're able to do. That church raised $465,000 to give to RIP Medical Debt. They wrote off Forty-six point or forty-five point six million dollars in medical debt for four was it forty-five thousand people? I think it was, or four thousand five hundred people. I, it's uh, I have to check my notes here. Forty-five thousand people wrote off their medical debt. You imagine the fame of Christ's name when forty-five thousand people ended up with letters in the mail that says your medical debt has been paid. And it's been paid in Jesus' name. That's loving your neighbor. Not just the neighbors right next to you, but the neighborhood that you live in. Some other practical ways. We love our neighbor by refusing to speak evil against our neighbor. Galatians chapter 5. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. We love our neighbor by refusing to speak evil against our neighbor. Just real simple and practical. We love our neighbor by refusing to show favoritism. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, that is favoritism, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. The idea that in the church family you love some people above others, that's favoritism. That's sin. So if there's a men's ministry event and you're a young person, you say, I'm not going to go to that because that's just the old people. (laughs) That's favoritism. That's sin. Because you're saying, I'm only going to hang out with people who are just like me, even though these are brothers and sisters in Christ who are a little different than me. Favoritism, it doesn't matter if somebody's like us or not. If they're a brother or sister in Christ, we love them just the same. Last one here. We love our neighbor by loving our enemy. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good He sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? In that day, people said you hate your enemies and you love your neighbors. And here's what Jesus said, you know... No, as Christians, we love even our enemies because when we were God's enemies, he first loved us. Folks, if you want to 
summarize all 613 commandments into something that is very simple that you and I can follow and obey. It's simply this. Love God with every fiber of your being, heart, soul, mind, and strength. You do that by growing in knowledge of God, which grows your love for God, which results in obedience to God. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Your nearest neighbor is your church family. Your next neighbor is your neighborhood. But as Christians, we even love our enemies. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.